Hello again and welcome to another episode of Voices from SA. My name is Nicholas Claude. I hope you're keeping well wherever you are today. My guest this week is an old friend of mine, Mohamed Matala. He's a lifelong activist for social and political change. He started out working in the trade union movement in the sort of mid-1980s. That's where we initially we moved in sort of similar circles, and that's where I initially bumped into him. Since then, he has worked both in so the NGO, well, initially in, in government and in the NGO sector, uh, particularly around issues of social change, transformation, social research. I caught up with Mo in Cape Town recently. Uh, it was a couple of weeks back I was down there. And we chatted about, well, we had a pretty sort of free-flowing discussion about the state of the nation, the possibilities of ongoing societal transformation, and also about his experiences in general of living in Cape Town and having to uh, confront the issue of race uh, for the first time. So it was quite... Well, I hope you find it fascinating. So please now enjoy my chat with Mohammed. Mo, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Nick. So, yeah, thanks, eh? Thanks for your time. Uh, took the chance now to touch base with you while I'm in Cape Town. And I just thought it would be interesting to chat to somebody who's uh, been a lifetime activist, I suppose, and just get some perceptions on, oh, state of the world, state of the nation, living in Cape Town. You moved here a couple of years ago with your family. Um, But it was interesting, I have to say, and I think I'll start there. Um, You posted recently on Facebook about a mural, I think it was, that included, was it a a member of your family Um, and Harold Strachan, among other people, and Harold Strachan was an old and dear friend of my dad's. He was actually one of the earliest members, I think, of Mkonto Wessis, where he helped build some of those first bombs, actually. And I think he does get some kind of military pension that they started paying him in his later life. But, of course, he he lived under extreme pressure. He was banned or under house arrest for most of the time that my, my family knew him. But there was a member of your family that was in that mural. What is the yes, connection? His, um, his name is Dr. Chota Motala. Right. And he is a granduncle. He's my grandfather's younger brother. Right. And on that mural, there's uh, Phyllis Naidu, Harold Strachan, A.K.M. Dokrat, and Chota Motala. And what, what was the common thread between those four? They were, they are known by my brother. My brother Faisal put that on his on the premises of his law firm, okay. his law practice right. in Durban, on the street. Oh, cool. And he decided to... Sort of pay respect know, or... To the four of them that he knew and are respected sort of older comrades that yes. he felt need to be remembered. Yeah, I think that's... It's somehow interesting and a sort of metaphor or, uh, or some kind of indication of how I think sometimes the ANC seems to have forgotten its own history in a way. I don't know if you get that impression that um, there's a kind of almost a rewriting, or not a rewriting, but it's there's a forgotten component of the struggle, particularly around people, I think, who didn't leave the country or, or didn't have high profiles in the struggle against apartheid. Yeah, the memory is selective, mm. so the ANC is 
somewhat selective in terms of who's in power and who had access to power. Mm. And in the writing of that history, yes, there are many, many comrades who have been forgotten or not adequately commemorated. Mm. And um, coming out of Durban in particular, I think as well, that was always maybe a sort of peripheral part of the struggle, wasn't it? I mean, Joburg and and I suppose the exile community were kind of the ones that have always been lauded in a way. Yeah, Durban has the history though and it's famous for the 1973 uh, worker riots and so yes. that's shaped a lot of our activism in the 80s and a close affinity to trade unions, trade. worker education and mm. that form of organising. So Durban has got that particular history. Yeah, right. And that's a good that you mentioned that because I think you were... You were working as a as an organizer or an educator. I'm, I'm not exactly sure what your role was. I met you sort of, I suppose it would have been mid-1980s. Yes. Mid-early 1980s in Durban through, I think, Neville, our, our, our mutual friend. There was a whole lot of guys now that are... Imran Valodia maybe was yes. one of them. You guys were all sort of activists. And you were working in which trade union in was that chemical then? Chemical Workers Industrial Chemi Union. Yeah, yeah. And the head office for chemical workers was in Durban at the time because of the petrochemical... The refineries and all of yes, that. Yes, factories and the refineries. Okay, so how did you... How old would you have been then? So that was my first job out of university. Oh, okay. So you but went to... Imran and Neville, all of them... At university, Imran through at Durban Westville, right, was the university that I had studied at initially yes. and did my undergraduate. That was the so-called Indian or the segregated Indian university in yes. in Durban. Yeah, what did you study there? I did an arts degree with geography, psychology, and Isizulu as a second major. Oh wow! Okay, and so was that always then? I mean, part of your, I mean, you, you talk about your great uncle. So there's a family, a history family, a history of family activism. And you're always determined to participate somehow in the struggle. And trade unionism was the path that you, you chose. So the fortunate part for me was that I grew up in a family that was aware. So the grand uncle, Chota Motala, was a treason trialist in 1963 he was acquitted in the treason trials but him you know in and out of jail so as a young child growing up in the 70s it was things were discussed in the family mm. and my dad sort of did he did explain a lot of what was going on and i was exposed to sort of racism and understood that from a very very young age so as children, when we were growing up, you know, during the day we'd go visit uh, Grandma in Falskrist, and these are early childhood memories. We would stand on the fence and watch the white kids playing on the swings and roundabouts. Mm. And at night, the younger uncles would sneak us over the fence, and we would have a whale of a time on the swings and roundabouts. Wow. Um, other experiences, Charlestown, watching the drive-in from outside and watching the entire movie through the fence. Silent. No, through the fence. The speaker you would have an extended long wire 
But through the barbed wire fence, you'd, you'd watch the movie. This was yes. driving in Charlestown. Yeah, yeah. But all of this was preceded by an animated discussion at the dinner table in the family as to whether we should subject ourselves to the indignity mm. or whether the children should have fun on the swings and roundabouts at night. So you'd mm. have to sit through that discussion first yeah. as a child before you went and got your chance to play on the swings and mm. roundabouts. Mm. So, you know, childhood memories, are there, there's lots and lots of them yeah. around that. But growing up on the sugarcane plantations of Natal and seeing the poverty there amongst Indian families and African families, desperate, desperate poverty, you know, people living and drawing water from unprotected wells, mm. um, single-sex hostels where Tosa men would be working on the sugarcane plantations. And the entire sugarcane sugar of southern Natal owned by three or four white families. Mm. We lived on one such plantation. So I was exposed to those extreme levels of poverty and inequality in a village called Amzinto. So yes, by the okay. time you go to high school, you're already aware. Mm. Um, and so your activism starts at an early age and 1980s when I was in matric and that's when we organized school the first boycotts, school boycott right. in our school at Amzinto mm. High. Yeah, yeah. So, and that was then into your university, also yes. then quite agitated times, so I imagine. Early 80s yeah. at Durban Westville University mm. and you mentioned Abba Omar, your neighbor. He was the chairperson of the Students' Representative Council right. at Durban Westville University. Hmm. And then get a bursary to study town and regional planning at Natal University. Right. 1986. That rings a bell degree. now. Yes. And so it was after you did that that you then joined the... The trade union, or you, your union work had already started while you were studying? So we did worker support. So the Wilson Roundtree's strike, the Clover Dairy strike, we were at university at that time, and organizing community boycotts around that uh, was where our support for workers and worker struggles already started at university. Mm. The other influence was in the generation above me, an uncle who, Enver, Motala, who also did a lot of work in worker education. So my explanations and the theory behind it all was, you know, Marxism and a Marxist class-based understanding mm. um, was developed at an early age, and I was drawn to those explanations uh, more than the issues around race and racism mm. and the struggles in South Africa and that's where trade unions and working in trade unions became, for me, a place that made the most sense. sense yeah. Hence, after leaving uh, university, the first job I went into was a branch secretary and organizer for Chemical Workers Industrial Union. Hmm. Imran also worked at, together with Mark Colvin at the Industrial Health Unit. That's it, yeah. At Natal University. Yeah. So that's where some of you know the people we worked with, uh, the Trade Union Research Project. Terp, yeah. Those, those <laughs> organizations. That's taking me back now. <laughs> yeah. 
But I mean, you were in deep, and that was a pretty hardcore time of our country's history, you'd have to say. I mean, from 86 to the election in 1994, you would say that that was probably the most dangerous time to ever have been an activist or a, a fighter for the struggle for freedom in this country. Um, it was, I mean, what what... What was your sense then of the state of the struggle? I mean, could you did you see an end in sight? Or did you just, you know, just wake up every day and keep on believing? So you live with victory is certain, but mm. you don't know when. So even today, you know that at some point in the future... It won't be for yourself, but maybe for your, you know, in the generations to come would benefit from the changes that are happening. I mean, mm. you know, another interesting story is Linton Hall. I don't know if you know Linton Hall on the south coast of Natal. No. It's a sugar estate uh, sort of boutique hotel. Oh, yes, I've heard of this place. Posh, posh. Never, place. A, yeah, not way above my pay grade. Yes. So one day my mom phones me from there and she's crying and in tears. And I ask her, mom, what's going on? And she says, you know, I'm sitting here and having tea with Gulshan, your niece, which is her grandchild. And I said, oh, that's great, mom, but why are you crying about it? <laughs> she said, no, your dad told me we used to see these beautiful buildings and these beautiful gardens and we were not allowed. And he told me that, no, we're doing all of this for, for our that. grandchildren. And it has happened. I am sitting here now yeah. with my grandchild and drinking tea in Linton Hall. Mm. Of course, Charlie Reynolds, he's the man. Um, you know, oh, is that the, the family? Reynolds estate. Yeah, that's right. the family. Mm. And my brother says to me, when I go, I must go there. And the, the, the story behind it amazed me. Because I went there for a wedding. Graham. Was it Graham's wedding? Bird. Bird. Okay. It could have been him or one of our friends yeah. got married there. Of course, Begit Kele also got married there, as an <laughs> aside. <laughs> but my brother phones me at the same conversation. That's freedom for you. With my mom and says, Mohammed, when you come here, you must ask to see the portrait of Charlie Reynolds. So I go there and the waiter comes and I say to the waiter, can I see the portrait of Charlie Reynolds? He says, who, the cruel man? I said, yes. So he says, come, I'll show you. And he is Mr. Pillay. He's a waiter hmm. in Linton Hall. Four generations ago, his great-great-grandfather worked for Charlie Reynolds, hmm. he, Mr. Pillay. Hmm. And he is now four generations still working for, for the Reynolds, Reynolds family. And he shows me this elaborate portrait of Charlie Reynolds. And the history behind him is that he ran one of the most, the kill rate on his estate Christ. was so high that the British had to have an inquiry into why are so, so many, many people, people dying on your estate. My That's goodness. the history of Charlie Reynolds Oof. and the Reynolds brothers. And I grew up and Linton in, Hall. In, those in that environment. And to, till today, the relationship between, you know, masters and slaves at that time and now 
Mr. Pillay and the Reynolds family continue. Unchanged. Mm. Haven't changed. And that's the history of Linton Hall. Mm. And I suppose that's also, I mean, what you're saying is that the struggle does continue somehow. I mean, we're not at the end of the journey, we're yes. at the start of it, I suppose, in your sort of analysis. Yeah, it's a continuum and mm. the permanency of struggle and trying to get sort of equality and some kind of future where we are less unequal and more together is something that we will continue to aspire for and there are degrees of that. So mm. it's a life that you know we live to to make a change and know that we may not see the end point or there may not even be an end point mm. but things are getting better. And so we continue. And you always have those steps along the way that you can point to and say, "This is because of this." That is, is you know, you can see some results in your yeah, work. I progress. suppose. Yeah, I progress. I suppose is, is the progress. way to put it. Yeah. Just quickly before we continue, you say Corso workers on the yes. sugar farms. Yes. So was that a migrant labour system? system yes. that even though there was yeah. what what the Zulu workers were in fucking Johannesburg then, or what the hell? So African Zulu families would live in homesteads under sort of chief rules and land that is allocated by traditional the leaders yes. and, yeah. but there would be hostels, single sex hostels, men would be living in them on the sugarcane plantations. And they came from the Eastern Cape? Yeah Equifa what the hell? and I'm trying to think of the names of the places but they're on the R612 if you drive from Amzinto High Flats on the road to Itopo, hmm. you will see you can see some of them from the road, and they still exist, uh, those hostels. And they were single-sex hostels. Yeah. Uh, Sugarcane workers, plantation, and Thosa workers. In fact, Amampondo workers. Mm. And that relationship between Zulus and Amampondo as well was very fraught. And so the faction fights and mm. all of that was fueled. Yeah, by, by that. By the way in which that They'd... migrant... System. Sort of puppets in the labor system. Yes, worked. Quite sick. So that was the early childhood and mm. into university. Yeah. And then work. Um, I mean, just on single sex hostels, they still do exist today. Yes. They still function, well, don't they? Well, they turned them into family units. But oh, of okay. course, what has happened is that. I'm talking mainly on the mines now, or most of those sort of urban yeah, big. Are, are they most of them urban? Are most of them family units? To change now? them, yeah, um, because the whole notion of having men live alone in single-sex hostels is abhorrent, and that's been recognised. Yeah. But what has happened is that a lot of them have got huge uh, informal settlements now. The overcrowding. They're a mess. So the violence in the hostels mm. in Durban, for example. All the Glebelands in particular. Yes. God Glebelands knows what is going hostel, on there. CJ Smith. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I just remember sort of seeing that for the first time myself as a young student, you know, going to school, get, um, you know, because most hostels you'd go and get some weed or there's a shabine on, you go and get beers on a Sunday and actually like walking into the place and just checking these men everywhere you know showering and washing under a tap in one corner these bunk beds these dark rooms and really for somebody who thought they kind of knew what was going on it was quite a shock i have to say to see that and again 
sort of brings to mind that whole sort of hidden depravity of apartheid. You know, we, we kind of, I suppose, see apartheid in very sort of kind of stark terms in a way, the violence of the police or, you know, the, you know those images of Hector Peterson or whatever, whatever. But, you know, you talk about migrant labor, you talk about the hostile system, about that whole network that was just so kind of dehumanizing that I feel we are still living with the consequence of today in, in so many respects in our society. How do we kind of move forward? How do we, you say it's progress, it's struggle. I just don't see now where we are. If you look at the trade union movement or you look at the political leadership of this country, I don't see a sense of any kind of project that's going to move us out of that darkness. How does, where do you, where do you, how do we, how do we move? So in answering that question, uh, Nick, it's not a simple answer. No, of course not. And the le so for me, there are different levels at which work needs to be done. So yes, at the broader level and the big stuff, the structural and systemic drivers of oppression and the organizations and the institutions that hold that up and the way we go about dismantling that or putting in place more sane and better systems, systems that are more redistributive, systems that are more sane, systems that recognize and are rooted in you know, understanding people and the humanity of people. So, mm. I, you know, I can't give you answers of, yes, we, ne yes, we need a more, we need more social in terms of our policies. Um, and yes, some form of socialism. But would you say that Norway, for example, is a socialist country? Is it a socialist country? Or is it a capitalist mm. country? And I don't want to have that discussion in terms of at that level to say it's either or. I'm saying that there are structures, systems, processes that have to be rooted in democratic practice, in recognizing struggle, in recognizing the history of struggle, in understanding that the changes that came about were driven by people's struggle and what does that mean. So a rewriting of history in terms of what are the levers of change and what are the pressure points and getting a perspective on that from the victims rather than the victors telling the story. Mm. So that's at that level. So the kind of organizations we need to build, the political organizations to change all of that. Yes, we need to have better organizations, more functioning. Political parties, deepen, you mean? Yes, we mm. need to deepen democratic practice and all of that and get a democracy going, whether that is a constituent assembly rather than this representative democracy. Mm, the lists, party lists and that? Yes, we need, to re we need to have a serious conversation about all of that, what's working and what's not working. Mm. But on the other hand, I do have, I have also grown in my understanding of understanding individuals and self and the work that we need to do as individuals 
and our own understanding and insertion into organizations and into society. And historically, yes, these came from behaviorist notions of, you know, do the right thing and you, you need to be coached and as an individual, the liberal values of personal freedoms and personal responsibility. But I want to mitigate that with, if you go too far into that, it then becomes a problem of individuals and you can solve the problem. So racism, patriarchy, you know, capitalism, the big systems are not the problem. You as an individual, mm. you can solve the problems if you only fix your own understanding and the way you relate to those huge systems. So I'm saying that work needs to be done at all levels. Yes, the big systemic structure, structural drivers of oppression need to be changed. So the taxation system, the way in which we're collecting money, redistributing benefits in society, the way in which we're growing the economy, the relationship that has with the planet and the ecosystem. Yes, we do need to pay attention to all of that. But at the same time, I have grown in the area of understanding myself as an individual and what drives me and how my relationship with people, both in organizations and in society, also needs to be aware mm. of my own privilege, where I come from, what I've understood, and how one engages. So we, uh, we had a, a chat the other day, and you were just talking about some of the differences between living in Johannesburg. Well, you're originally, you know, you're from, from Pozzolinital, Durban, moved to Joburg, the big city, um, and now to Cape Town. Um, and you, you told me that you'd, you'd had to sort of confront or sort of recognize your race somehow more than you had in any time in your history. And I mean, you're talking about your stories from your youth when you kind of knew apartheid existed. So you knew there was racism, but maybe you can just talk to me a little bit about what, that, what you mean by that. So, you know, there's a lot in social media and in the press about how untransformed uh, Cape Town is. The, you know, you would find many stories of black professionals who sort of come to Cape Town and after a few years sort of say that they can't live here anymore and go back to Johannesburg. So I came to Cape Town in, I've now lived here for three years. And in no other place in this country have I been made more aware of issues around race and me being a black person and facing prejudice, the way in which I've had to confront that or deal with that here in Cape Town. Cape Town and the extent to which it is untransformed compared to the rest of the country um, you know, right from the street names to the spatial layout of the city. It's the only city where black people don't own the center of the city. The funny story, and I might have told this, I have told this to some friends, is that when I arrived here in 2016 in Cape Town, 
it reminded me of 1980 in Durban. Hmm. Because the ridge was the defining... Uh, Geographical landmark, landmark or separation barrier. Black and white. So white people lived in the front of the ridge, sea views and overlooking the ocean and woke up to the cool sea breeze. <laughs> Us black people lived in Overport and behind the ridge. That's 1980 uh, Durban. 2016 Cape Town, the mountain defines that. The front of the mountain, and the funny part is that the front of the mountain is entirely or mostly foreign-owned. Hmm. Not even white South Africans can afford to buy land and houses. Of course, if those that are, have historical money and all of that. But, you know, the Atlantic seaboard, the front of the mountain, the Cape Town City Bowl, that all is not affordable for South Africans, us, if you're earning rands. You have to be earning dollars or pounds to afford that. And or you have South to be very wealthy. Yes. Mm. Or, and then the South Africans, all of us, we live behind the mountain <laughs> here in the southern suburbs, and that's what we can afford. So I saw this immediately when I moved to Cape Town, that kind of segregation, that kind of neo-apartheid uh, between, you know, where wealth defined now and also race continued to define access to the city. In terms of other um, city level, you know, black people, Kailicha is far from the city, poor and black people live out of the city. Black people do not have access to the city. If you go to places like Durban or Johannesburg, the CBD is black. Here in Cape Town, that's not the case. So the extent to which poverty is criminalized, and you see it in Cape Town. So the streets are clean because there are no street traders. There are no taxis running around in the suburbs. You know, they're restricted to main road here in the southern suburbs. Mm -hmm. They're not driving around. Oh, um, they have to stick to that one road. So there, there are few roads. And mm. for the first time ever, I'd seen signs, no taxis allowed. So in Durban, for example, you would find busloads of people from the township going to the beach. You don't see that here because buses are not allowed on the beach roads, hmm. on the roads that are close to the beach. So buses have to park far away and it's inconvenient. So in that way, it's subtle but direct and clear, uh, the mechanisms to prevent poor people from accessing the city black people from accessing the beaches. And of course, I'm sure you read about the Clifton Fourth Beach mm. saga that happened, I think it was last year in December. Sometime and over the Christmas holidays, yeah. people yeah. got pissed Oaks off. were shocked. Because of that. So these kinds of things continue in Cape Town. I mean, the street names haven't changed, the big street names. Um, and a lot of it, so even in the building regulations, and the extent to which heritage is protected and whose heritage is protected. I mm. mean, the fact that the Khoi lived here for 90,000 years, nine zero thousand years, and there's no evidence or nothing is maintained. No cultural protection for them. You know, it's not as evident as the cultural protection of colonial heritage. 
which is very evident in the buildings, the Rhodes Memorial, and places like that. So that is very stark in Cape Town. And so it permeates in the physical sort of uh, what you see around you to the institutions, to mm. the business, to the corporations, to the shops, to academia. I mean, you know, UCT and the struggle that black professors have or black academics have um, in UCT and trying to sort of carve a space out and define it as a, as an, as a place where black academics can actually teach things. And like the black radical tradition, for example, you wouldn't find that being taught or a perspective, uh, a radical black tradition, you know, being part of the curricula mm. at uh, universities. Mm. So Cape Town very much depicts all of that. And I was faced with that for the first time in my life. Hmm. After decades of living in Durban, of living in Johannesburg, the starkness of it all. Um, it was for the first time I had to start reading, understanding, and try to grapple with the race theory. I've never sort of needed to do that hmm. previously. But it's, I needed to sort of understand it much, much more deeply. What is that race theory? Is that, is that just sort of trying to understand the sociology or the history of racism? I'm, I'm just, I, I don't even know how, how one would define, because I, I mean, I, I don't think I've read up too much on that myself. What do we mean by so race theory? it's trying to theory? understand racism hmm. and where it comes from and how come it is so... You know, the history of the world, if you look at it uh, in the way in which um, slavery, Western, the Atlantic slave trade and capitalism shaped the Western hemisphere of the world. So the Americas, North and, and the industrial South. era, I suppose. Yes. And how all of that came together. Um, and then colonialism came after that. So trying to understand why race and racism is such a determinant of who you are and what access you have, and why is it that uh, race as an economic system you know, defines your access to wealth. I mean, the indicators in this country are clear, but all over the world. Mm -hmm. So race theory tries to understand that, and I'm saying that my learning prior to this had been around class yes, and understanding oppression and poverty and... Traditional Marxist kind of... Yes. Texts. Um, and I've had to sort of try and understand the black radical tradition, which tries to explain and puts race front and center of our oppression and, under, and puts a perspective that, yes, capitalism helped racism. It's not the other way around. Hmm. Because racism was there before capitalism. Um, racism, ethnicity, nationalism. So pre-industrial uh, revolution, the way in which the British exploited on ethnic grounds, the Irish, um, 
So it goes back to that. And if one mm-hmm. goes further back to that, you know, racism in terms of even the early um, economies around the Mediterranean and the way in which Western Europe engaged with the Mediterranean economies and the Mediterranean countries and the racism inherent in that drove those relationships which predate, which come before the Industrial Revolution. So the black radical tradition tries to look at all of that and explain how racism, or rather white supremacy, more than racism, sort of shapes our history. And the reason I had to read up on all of that was my experiences in Cape Town. I mean, Mm. I still believe in class theory and, you know, Marx and the labor theory of value, but I've had to seriously consider why race is so evident as a marker, as a determinant of social standing. That has happened in Cape Town, different to other cities in South Africa. And I suppose now you talk about white supremacy. Um, You see what's coming out of the United States now. Um, There was that crazy photograph of those policemen on horseback leading a guy handcuffed with a rope around his neck down a street. That was apparently all according to procedure. No one had really seen anything wrong with that. You just wonder... Well, I suppose if you look at the, the global economic system, you, you, I suppose you should realize that sort of white supremacy and racism never, have never really gone away. They've always been with us. Yes. Are, are we kind of seeing the last... Was this the last sort of kick of it, do you think? I mean, these sort of desperate fascist regimes or right-wing regimes that are emerging now in... Russia, across Europe, United States. I mean, how does the left counter this? So in as much as there are, you know, in as much as there is a a rise in the right-wing fascism, uh, fascism, I also think that the Black Lives Matter movement, Mm. similar to the Me Too campaign, has heralded a sea change in our understanding of racism and patriarchy. Mm. So yes, in this world of uh, rising xenophobia and Trumpism and Johnson and the horrors we also have and have had in our recent, very recent history, these explanations which started to put the issue of slavery, reparations, the history of black people in America back on the agenda. And so that picture of the two white horsemen leading the black uh, person that they had... Suspect. Suspect. So it, now when you look at it, it, you know, it, it's framed by, if you, you understand the kind of oppression, racism, struggle that black people went through, and you, you immediately recognize that that is not right. 
So the sea changed. So even in patriarchy and the Me Too campaign and the way in which things two, three decades ago were mm. normal, are no more normal. And we won't stand for that anymore. So that's where the hope is. Mm. That I'm saying the rewriting of history and the way in which the emerging sort of um, applications of understanding race and race theory that's my fault sorry. has sort of reawakened and I'm sure it is influencing the curricula now at universities and what people are learning because the students brought that to the fore hmm. uh, you know the fallest students at universities I mean when the, the extent to which free higher education um, happened and is now a reality so it's a mixed yeah. bag I'm saying Nick yeah that yes there's conservative and the right of rise right wing but yes that will happen and those things we have to fight them and we'll continue to fight them and there are institutions already which will fight them and we need to strengthen those institutions and give them more power but it there's also the opening space of a growing realization that what we used to consider as normal mm. in terms of the inequalities, in terms of prejudice, is not going to be... Won't fly anymore. Won't fly anymore. Now, that's interesting, and I suppose you do need to kind of acknowledge the, the strength of those movements, how, however disparate or even non-sustaining in a way they seem to be. They've already planted that seed. Um, as you say, I mean, fees must fall. Okay, one can have an argument about where that could have gone or should have gone or, or, or however. But, I mean, I've, I, 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 I take your point that, I mean, now university education is, is free and that's, I mean, a remarkable achievement. Um, and the same with uh, Me Too and Black Lives Matter. And I suppose also the um, growing fight against or for uh, climate uh, well, what is it? The fight against industry uh, in order to try and save our planet, yes. I think, might also become uh, significant because that, to me, does really go to the heart of modern industrial capitalism and the impact that that has. Okay, initially on the environment, but I mean, we we do not we cannot separate ourselves from that environment. So. It is a struggle for our own survival. And I suppose that is the next, one of the next phases in the, in the struggle, would you, would you say? Yeah, the, the extent to which we have irrevocably changed the planet and you know, are, are destroying our home is something that shocked me when I started to read around how climate change... Um, and what shocked me was why we are not being as desperate in fighting that battle as we were desperate in fighting the battles against racism mm. uh, and apartheid. And why is it that, so for example, you and I have not given up eating fish because the story behind the plastic pollution in the oceans is not about the straws, it's that 75% of all the plastic comes from the fishing industry. 
from the fishing nets. Fishing industry. Well, oh, yes, okay. The fishing yeah. okay. Nets Residue related. of that hole. Yes. So Jeepers. it's got nothing to do with straws and yeah. plastic bottles. It's the mm. fishing industry, 75% of the plastic in the ocean. So how come you and I, Nick, have not given up eating fish? Because that drives the plastic. Um, how come you and I have not given up flying on aeroplanes? You know, there's a train between here and Joburg. Um, and how come we've not sort of rallied to the call of um, fixing, you know, environmental justice? Mm. And that worried me. Yeah, I mean, I I think about that a lot now. I've had quite a number of people on the on the podcast recently, and uh, Puvan uh, at Natural Justice, um, you know, who is fighting that fight, that link between sort of indigenous people and nature, and that sort of it, it dawned on me in a weird way that the the most oppressed, the most vulnerable groups on earth are going to be at the forefront and may even be the groups that, that save us from ourselves in a way. But then I'm also asking, you know, what does what does a sort of low emission and no carbon sort of world and economy look like when we... You know, it's, I think maybe it's just somehow difficult for people to conceive of something different. I don't know. So we need to change our frameworks and thinking and, you know, the realm of possibility. And you're driven by a belief in terms of what is justice and what is right. So if your starting premise is that we can't continue in the way that we are continuing, and something needs to be done about that. So you then work around, so what can we do? Mm. And you accept that. But the frightening thing is that we still have to convince a lot of people mm. that that is a necessary step that we need to take. Um, and that battle, so the major policy uh, drivers and the fact that we still build coal-fired power stations, yeah. we're still thinking of nuclear uh, power, when the evidence all around us is clear that you know these forms of energy are not sustainable, that solar, wind, and clean forms of energy are actually cheaper and affordable um, and possible. So, in the same way that you know the electric car was killed, I think in the eighties or when was it? Yeah, there's the story of. There is that documentary, I'm yet to watch it, but apparently quite compelling viewing. Yes. So there was ample evidence and proof, but it's how the auto industry uh, drove that. And so now the challenge is you have to like demonstrate how electric cars can be fast and perform and are able mm. to be just as snazzy. <laughs> as cars. <laughs> as uh, petrol driven. <laughs> You know, carcinogenic spewing BMWs. So that's where you, what you have to do. Mm. Um, so in the same way, Nick, I'm saying that the struggle for the environment and for justice 
why is it that we have to, it's not imaginable and it's not within our realm of understanding. There are huge forces at play which are sort of wanting to make it not understandable and not clear and not important. Mm. Um, but I do think that with a smidgen of understanding, the importance of, of that is clear for everybody to see. The evidence on global warming and what's happening, um, you know, to the glaciers and how climate change, these floods that we're seeing, these cyclones, even here where we live mm. in South Africa, they're drying up and the intensity of the hailstorms and all of that. In our lifetime, we can already see the changes that are happening in, in climate. Mo, um, let's end it there. Thanks a lot for your time this afternoon. Uh, it's been fascinating, this discussion, and uh, a lot of food for thought there. I appreciate it. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for making the time, and it's a pleasure talking to you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Once again, I'm sort of intrigued and inspired by the positivity of activists like Mohammed or Puven, who I spoke to recently, John Clark, uh, a number of my recent guests, and I, I hope um, you've noticed over the last, uh, since I began the, this podcast series, um, people who are so sort of focused on the possibility for change. And um, I think I was particularly struck, you know, in his response to my kind of concern on the rise of the right um, that, you know, he pointed out, you know, the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter and fees must fall more locally here as important sites of struggle and indeed movements that have already changed realities or attitudes forever, um, I would say. So, so I suppose, yeah, we should always see the possibility for change, get engaged, get involved and, uh, keep working towards, a, as Mo says, a more redistributive uh, model uh, of society and um, keep believing that that is possible even in the chaos of, of South Africa today. Voices from SA is hosted on Audio Boom. You may also subscribe to Voices from SA via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio Public Deezer, or indeed wherever you get your podcasts tell your colleagues, tell your friends, tell the world. Until next time, I'm Nicholas Claude. Cheers.